what you do with other people's body parts is not going to be the most important part of that work. Meet Allie Drucker. My name is Allie Drucker. It's great to be here. Her advice book, all about college hookups and relationships, has just hit shelves. I always love talking with you guys because you're the population that the book was written for. Drucker's a Los Angeles-based freelance writer covering sexual health and pop culture. You're not a handmaiden of the patriarchy if you ever felt too scared to say what you wanted. You can find her work in the New York Times, New York Magazine, Huffington Post, Refinery29, and more. She previously served as a sex and relationships editor at Maxim and Cosmo. So read the book of All About Sex, but then also go to class and do what you came to school for. Yes! I'm Simone Melvin, and this is The Fine Print. Your book, Do As I Say, Not Who I Did, Honest Advice on Hookups and Relationships in College, takes several approaches to providing advice and resources on college relationships and hookups, um, including but not limited to personal anecdotes, research from experts in sex and sexual health, and narratives from students and past students you've reached out to. So in all these avenues, I kind of want to know what your process of writing was like for you like what was it like to reach out to so many different people yeah it was immersive and thorough and a little overwhelming because as you noted I used a lot of different kind of threads to weave it together but I really wanted it to feel as comprehensive as I could I I knew I wanted to be a voice of it kind of like a book ending each chapter with personal experiences because I think you know, it's nice to have that that narrator that you can relate to who has like been there, done that, made the mistakes and isn't making you feel bad about stuff that you might be learning for the same at the same time or things that you might be going through. But I'm also just one person. And I've also been out of college been a long time. I'm in my 30s now. So I wanted to talk to current students to make sure I was really kind of picking up on the way things are now and not just like living in my heyday in the past. So getting them involved was really wonderful because they opened my eyes to a lot of ways in which things were really the same as when I was in school and ways in which things were a lot different. And getting them in there too ensured I could reach a lot of different backgrounds that I don't have that I can't speak to as a writer. And then beyond that, I felt like having the psychologists and the educators and the sex therapists really added a bunch of legitimacy and facts and analysis that I might not be able to provide on your own. You know, like when you're a journalist working in a specific space for a while, you learn a lot, certainly, but I don't have the credentials that my sources had. So I was so lucky and thrilled to be able to bring in experts in the field to really flesh it out and make people think that, you know, what I'm reading, I can relate to and I can trust. So it was overwhelming, but I think well worth the effort. Yeah. Expanding on that, um, you have written work on sex and relationships in various publications, such as the New York Times and Cosmopolitan. Um, So how was writing this book, which is certainly much more of a long form process, uh, different from writing articles and uh, editorials? Yeah, great question. I mean, this is definitely the most ambitious project I've ever taken on. You know, when you're writing an essay for a paper or, you know, a website, it's usually pretty quick turnaround. You're often writing to something current or, you know, pitching an evergreen story that you've had a lot of time to think about um, and you submit it, you get a round of edits or two, and then it goes live and it's pretty instant. And I had been kind of used to that instant gratification um, it working in the web space for so long. And so it was crazy to like sit in my own bubble for literally three years and not have that kind of real-time feedback. 
you know, when it goes online, you know exactly what readers think about it because they'll either say something nice or leave nasty comments or it won't do well, you know, with statistics and stuff for readership. So you have a good idea of how things are going um, and not having that feedback and just kind of having to trust the process and work in a little bit of a bubble by myself for so long was a really different experience. I can imagine that um, addressing something as large as just relationships in college can be very daunting. So I thought it was very appropriate that your book addressed the topic of consent very early on. Mm -hmm. um, and so something I thought was really interesting, exceptionally about consent that you addressed was uh, when you said, of course, just because people are talking more about consent today doesn't mean that everyone is really listening. And even when we're listening, we don't always understand. Um, and this was something that I thought was similar to another line, which was another popular misconception about consent it goes back to the clinical, almost nerdiness of the word. Um, this really interested me. And I kind of wanted to know what your thoughts were about this rhetoric of consent as something that's trivial or something that can be like taken lightly because it's it, it does seem like have a clinical nerdiness uh, tone that you were talking about. Yeah. And unfortunately that doesn't do us any favors. Like it doesn't sound sexy. It doesn't sound cool. It doesn't sound interesting. And the way that we've like kind of sort of packaged the language, like obtaining consent and getting enthusiastic consent and making sure you're always reaching consent. It's tricky because it's not doing justice to the factor, uh, like to the underlying meaning of it is like, are you engaging in stuff that's going to harm your partner or not? Like, holy shit, we should all be caring about that. Apologies for my language. I'll um, try not to do that again. Um, it's so foundational and so important. And I think you're absolutely right that the kind of clinical packaging of it allows us to not take it as seriously and allows us to joke about it and not really engage with how crucial it is to be a partner who doesn't want to harm the people that they're around, you know, because there's nothing more harmful than engaging in sexual activity without your partner's consent. It's like bedrock number one. That's why it's so early in the book. And I think I definitely found this to be true in my interviews. Like, and you know, these were young women I was speaking to who certainly acknowledged, like they understood what was going on, but even they would, you know, open up that they joke about it with their friends. Like, oh, are you gonna make, you're going out tonight, we're drinking, we're going to the bar, you guys gonna get consent first? Like joking about it the way that your mom would like remind you to bring a jacket on a cold day. So I think like it's, it leaves us a long way to go because it's really easy to put stuff like that on posters in dorm rooms and kind of have the language posted around like the student health center. But until we really engage with what it means, like do I want to be a terrible person to my partner or not? And we're not going to like truly, truly get the most out of it. And when you're getting the most out of consent, it's about having an affirmative, wonderful, pleasurable, engaging experience for both people. And, you know, what else do we want out of sex? I almost think that whenever people take consent seriously, they're almost looked down on like, oh, you're taking yourself too seriously. Oh, you're like mm -hmm. being like... Um, like uptight or something, um, which I think is why it's so important that it's addressed so specifically for college age students who are still trying to figure out like what it means to have agency, especially women in college. Absolutely. And so I always advocate for 
getting your consent in a way that feels organic in the situation, but it is still, of course, crystal clear. That's why there's some like kind of dirty talking prompts, which might feel really dorky in the moment until you practice them. But once you find the language that you feel comfortable with, like, do you like it when I do this? Do you want me to try doing this? You know, you can make it part of your communication with a partner that doesn't feel contrived, that doesn't feel like uptight and makes you nervous. And I think like that's kind of a way to get into it if you're having a little trouble not taking it seriously yourself. Something that you scatter in a lot are these little prompts and tips and tricks that seem very like by the book or a book is in like instructional, but I found that to be very interesting because although it seems like we should intuitively know so much about our bodies, we really don't. And so I, when I found myself reading these like tips and tricks, I was just like, you know, these sound a lot more foreign coming out of my mouth or like reading them on a page than I would have expected. Yeah, I think the most important thing I learned while reporting this book is that you cannot assume that everybody's at the same level with exposure and information about these topics. And it doesn't hurt to go back to basics because you might learn that, oh, I I think about this a little bit differently than I thought I did, or maybe I do want to try that, or maybe I didn't understand that. So the way I approached it, I was like, all right, if some people are going to know this already, great. They can skip this one little box in the book with these tips, but maybe there's for, for one person who knows it, maybe there's five people who don't, and they're going to get information that they might not have otherwise. So I wasn't afraid of like kind of taking it back to 101 because there's so many people who have not gotten 101, who have not even gotten 99, you know, in terms of their their prep for these topics. Taking it directly back to 101, there were so many statistics that surprised me. Exceptionally, the one that said only eight states required sex ed classes to teach lessons on consent. And then worse still, in North Carolina, it's currently illegal for a woman to withdraw consent once intercourse has begun. That, yeah. Yeah, with with the caveat that um, laws and statutes and things may change from the time this was published. Um, Yeah, none of that shocks me. There's not a single thing about our poor state of sex ed in this nation that shocks me at all. I wish I could say otherwise, but like, you know, the powers that be want women to be uninformed and out of control of their bodies to benefit the existing power structures and any Thing that was going to give people more information and more agency, uh, the U.S. government is not super invested in that happening with the current uh, representatives. And I think that's such an extension of how we don't allot time, energy, and money into things that are important, specifically important for women. Um, in your conversation with Vanessa Marin, you discussed how it shouldn't be a woman's job to educate men on how to have conversations about consent which reminds me of how we expect certain things like emotional labor, just for example, to be the burden of women in any given relationship dynamic. Oh yeah, all the planning, you know, like putting together grocery lists, letting people know, hey, where we're going this weekend, whose party were we invited to, you know, we have to show up there first. That all becomes women's labor. And I, um, this was a really tough line to skirt in the book because it, it's a it's an advice book for women, you know? And I, I hate the underlying assumption that like, women have to be the one to learn these things, but like, yeah, in a perfect world, it wouldn't be just a woman's job to learn these communication skills and to learn the information in this book, but we don't live in a perfect 
world. So I could write a book for the world we're in, or I could write it for the world I wanted. And I decided to go with the former because I thought that that would be more useful, you know? And every person who practices better and healthier strategies in their relationship is building their own muscles for self-care and also educating partners along the way. So maybe that's part of how we get to a world where women don't need books like this aimed at them. And it, another thing about like how I feel like this is just an extension of empowering oneself with knowledge. Um, you mentioned that women especially note um, they tend to be afraid to make their roommates mad or rock the boat. So we shrug off conversations. And this is in um, relevance to not having the right conversations whenever you're living with a roommate and you're trying to talk about boundaries. Um, I'd like to like know your thoughts about how women don't have tough conversations in general um, because we're not taught to and how that affects every facet of our life and like therefore probably liberty as well. Oh yeah, and I should definitely say a lot of this is generalization. It doesn't speak to the experience of everybody who identifies as a woman. Not every woman is afraid of tough conversations. Um, but in general, it's um, about what we're socialized to do as women as we're growing up, which is like other people's instructions for us that we internalize. You know, we are socialized to be people pleasers, to be good hostesses, to not rock the boat, to take care of others, to offer to do the dishes, and it goes on and on and on. And we get that messaging that other people and their needs are perhaps more important than our own. And that can lead to suppressing our own wants and needs and opinions if we get the sense it's gonna rub someone else the wrong way, you know? Um, or at least, you know, we get an icky feeling about having to have those conversations and, you know, we get a little bit nervous about it and we might dwell and we might stress and we might give it brain space in a way that I don't think men are always socialized to do, you know? it's sort of another form of emotional labor, the worrying about how expressing our needs is gonna affect others. And you know, if we do work up to asking for what we want and having a tough conversation with a roommate, with a boss, that kind of thing, we probably are doing so with more stress. You know, we're taking on more stress for those negotiations. And if we don't do it at all, you know, we're not getting what we want. So I do think that message that your wants and needs should be placed back, placed in the back burner, if you think it's going to run contrary to what makes everything else run smoothly, can absolutely prevent you from getting what you want and what you need. It can prevent you from having a healthy living situation if there's a conflict with a roommate that you just think it's going to be, oh, it's not worth it to bring it up because it's going to make things worse. That's you not getting what you need because you're afraid to engage. And that really runs the gamut from college to relationships to workplaces. And it's, it's tough to kind of stand in that and say like, no, I am not a bad person for having a boundary I need expressed. I am, you know, not a bitch for wanting more from my job and wanting to talk to my boss about opportunities for growth if I don't feel I'm being utilized right. Like standing in what you feel you deserve and not feeling entitled for believing you deserve certain things is a really hard skill to practice. And I think it all goes back to learning what you want and learning how to ask for it. Something that I thought was kind of adjacent to that um, was your conversation around alcohol in relationship to hookups and college culture. Um, and alcohol is a very large part of college culture <laughs> on most campuses. Um, but it, it reminds me uh, specifically something that you mentioned about how alcohol can 
sometimes feel for some women that it gives them an excuse or a reason to do certain things, which kind of reminds me of what you were talking about with how um, we're socialized not to have a lot of agency over our own decisions. Um, but in that kind of vein, another statistic that you mentioned that has to do with alcohol um, and sexual assault specifically was when you mentioned that 74% of perpetrators and 55% of victims were drinking when the assault happened. Um, and then on top of that, when looking at the assaults where alcohol was involved, both parties were drinking 97% of the time. But what really interested me was the 74% of perpetrators, because over the 55% of victims just because I feel like so often like you hear <laughs> were you drinking how much were you drinking when addressed toward the victim being the you in this sentence and yeah. you very infrequently like hear do you know if the other person was drinking when it's so clearly a much higher percentage absolutely you know um and I think you're absolutely right that alcohol is such a double-edged sword when it comes to women and hookup culture because a lot of you know, people who identify as women really do feel like they needed to justify wanting to have casual sex and wanting to have hookups that, you know, don't turn into a crazy long relationship. They just want to have sex to feel good in their bodies. And we're told that this is wrong and that makes you a slut and you shouldn't do that and blah, 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 in a way that of course men do not get that messaging. So in order to be able to shake it off, yeah, there is some data that suggests women have this blanket of alcohol that they can blame it on later. So they don't have to you know, take on the mantle of, yeah, I just wanted to have sex to feel good, which is something we should all be comfortable saying. But of course, alcohol is a factor when it comes to sexual assault. It is not a cause in and of itself, which I think we can all agree on. Like rape only happens when someone decides to rape and alcohol does not make anybody rape. It's the person and their decision. Um, and it makes it so easy to blame it on women who are drinking and quote unquote, let their guard down. But I think you're totally right about men. I think when men do get asked about their alcohol use, it's much less shaming, you know, when we ask the same thing about women. I don't think men are getting asked about it as much, but there's so much less of a shame factor because, you know, we're looking at women of like, why did you let this happen? You were drinking, so you must have, you know, let this happen because you were impaired, you were intoxicated. And we don't always talk about it with men who like perhaps might use it as an excuse of why they didn't heed the signs to stop, which is also, you know, a really important thing to think about and to talk about. And I think you're definitely right that we're not putting that same lens up as men with their alcohol use. Kind of related to uh, your own experience with alcohol, you mentioned in this one line where you say, one time a friend of mine even kicked a guy down a small flight of stairs because he had been drunkenly flirting with the two of us during the same night. Could you tell me more about this uh, story? I certainly can, with the caveat that I do not endorse violence. And this was a very small flight of stairs, like maybe just like two or three. And the gentleman in question was totally fine. Um, it was in college where your friend groups can get really close, borderline incestuous with people hooking up with each other, um, which definitely creates its own issues and dynamics. Um, but I had a crush on this guy and I think the feeling was mutual. And my friend also had a crush on him, but he very much enjoyed having the attention of two women at a time like really great for his ego, made him feel good. So even though things were 
sort of trending more exclusive between he and I, he wasn't willing to kind of let my other friend know that, you know, I think we're more just friends and kind of encouraged her advances and returned them a little and was like really just blatantly manipulating both of us. And we were at a party and another friend swooped in and was a little bit drunk and kind of called him out on it and um, maybe gave him a slight push that accidentally knocked him down a flight of stairs. And it should tell you something that how low my self-esteem was at the time that I went on to date him for a not insignificant amount of time. <laughs> so many of the people you interviewed and your stories yourself would describe the situation in which an initial reaction of mine would be like, oh, that's terrible. I can't believe he did that or their partner did that. And then someone goes on to say, and then I dated him for a year. Uh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all just because of like the, the proximity of college and like, these are your options. So if they treat you poorly, they're still kind of your only options. I mean, at very, very large schools, yes, absolutely. You can get a little bit more space and things like that. But when you are repeatedly exposed to the same people in your classes and your dorms and your clubs, you know, they, they kind of become your go-to sexual partners. And it, I, my personal opinion is that makes it a little bit more likely to excuse them of bad behavior because like, where else are you going to go? <laughs> College is kind of a bubble in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one story that I thought was interesting that you brought up had to do with someone called Margo, um, who the quote goes, Margo and her friend were uncomfortable after um, someone else, an older man um, that they were uninterested in um, was making passes at them. Um, and then a couple of younger guys stepped in to intervene. They were grateful for the assist and Margo and her friends remember talking to them, taking shots, and then they don't remember anything else. The next day she woke up in bed with one of the guys and her friend was on the other futon on the floor. Um, this story is not necessarily a happy one, um, but it reminds me of the movie Promising Young Woman, if you are familiar with that. Yeah, I am. Um, please. <laughs> No, 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 I was just going to ask you to expand or if you had any thoughts on that. Sure. Or the Definitely. I think the movie was incredibly thought-provoking. I really enjoyed the experience of watching it because I like things that unnerve and make us question like where our own lines of morality are, which I think the film does really well. You know, there are some times when you're definitely not on board with her methods, but you really identify with the emotion behind it. And I think it really makes it a, a fun experience for the viewer to sort of play those scenarios in your head of like, where's the line? How far would I go? Is this right or is this wrong? Um, and I think that definitely echoes some themes of the book. And um, that ending is pretty poignant too. the idea that, you know, often getting justice can cost a woman her life. And, um, you know, which is quite literal in the film, but I find a little bit more metaphoric in real life when you're talking about the justice system and sexual assault, because even if you do get to court, which so few cases do and so few cases win, the process of reporting a sexual assault can be so, so all-consuming and re-traumatizing that it costs you a lot to stand up for what's right, which I think is a big factor of why not everybody does choose to report assault. So I think there's tons of parallels in that movie to themes that are really relevant to the lives of young women today. And I thought that conversation was so important because it is so fundamental to understand how Title IX works and like to know who your Title IX coordinator is at your university. But yeah. 
it is so notoriously a difficult system and you hear horror stories all the time about how the process doesn't work or they still have to see and live with their perpetrator. Yeah, I was definitely so fascinated to learn more about that because I confess I had little idea at all when I was in school, like none. I didn't even know what a Title IX coordinator was. I didn't know that, you know, that's somebody you could go to. And I think um, I definitely wanted to send the message that like, hey, actually, you're not a bad person if you don't report your assaults, because it's only up to you whether you can handle the process of going through that. And no one's allowed to judge you for that decision because it's incredibly personal. And I, I I had kind of like gotten the message like, no, it's your moral responsibility to always report it. And if that's someone's opinion, sure, that's a defensible opinion, but it's not the only correct option. And what I did really like learning that even though there's so much barriers and red tape and things that can go wrong, there are a lot of accommodations that I had no idea about that you can realistically demand, you know, like retaking exams if it came at a traumatic period after an assault and, you know, even potentially retaking a class or, you know, getting a different dorm assignment, things like that, that could really help you whether or not you want to file an official report and open up proceedings against a person. So it's nice to know that there are some protections that can improve your quality of life, regardless of how far you want to take the reporting process. And I think just the knowledge of this and kind of the fact that these are conversations that we're having now are a very strong testament to how students and people in college are thinking so much more about their sexual health that's related to their health that we might, you know, think of their physical health or their mental health. Um, and especially how it relates to bodily autonomy now. Um, I'm sure a lot has changed since you've begun the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I certainly, I'm sure Roe is top of mind and it's reversal as, you know, we're talking about this. Um, and I just think it's such an obvious tragedy, you know, such an obvious betrayal. Um, but it beyond that, it really makes the stakes so much higher for those decisions about your sexual health and the thought process you have to go through before you, you know, engage with a new partner. You know, if you live in a state where abortion is illegal, you know, you have to start asking yourself potentially, how would this partner be as a co-parent? You know, and that's that is absolutely not something you should have to ask yourself. Birth control exists for a reason so that sex can be for pleasure, for education, for expressing yourself, for getting to know someone better. And I, it's like a, a travesty in ways that haven't even begun to fully unfold. And it's just, it's a, a horrible thing that these decisions have to be so much weightier than they were perhaps depending on where you live. And what I was thinking about whenever I read um, something that one of your sources mentioned that more and more of her students um, had shared that they were waiting until the conditions were right for the type of sex that they want to have. It made me think about how I feel like more and more students are thinking if that's even a viable option. Um, I know that the book is all about like hookups and like your experience and this kind of like just throw yourself into the water. But I feel like, do you think after talking to so many students now that this almost just feels like an impossibility or some people have ruled that out um, for their own concern about what the climate is like around them. Yeah, I think I think we have yet to see the full impact and it's going to be devastating, but I think that's absolutely going to be the case, unfortunately. I think there are people who are really just going to say no full stop when they don't want to say no because the stakes being so high. 
you know. And the scary. Yeah, stakes are high, even whenever we're not talking about um, what just happened with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Uh, Whenever I was reading the um, statistic on um, uh, sexting and online violence, when you were saying that a little less than 50% of young adults 18 to 29 engage in some form of sexting. However, one in 10 women under 30 will experience threats of leaking those sensitive communications there, like, from what I'm familiar with, um, there are really no protections that are really in place to help uh, victims of online violence in that way as well. Yeah, it's pretty terrifying. There are some lawyers who have made it their cause and champion it. Um, Carrie Goldberg is one I spoke with who does excellent work, work in the revenge porn space representing a lot of young women. Um, but it's is terrible and it also kind of spawned some advice that potentially might be a little controversial in this book in that chapter specifically where it's like if you're gonna do this here's how to do it a little bit safer because I can't sit here and pretend that people aren't gonna text nudes to people they want to have sex with it's a become practically a mainstream part of flirting these days and for better or for worse, if you can't eradicate a behavior that is risky, you can at least give some advice on how to do it more safely, which is things like end-to-end encryption um, on your messaging platforms of choice. Don't ever do it over like Instagram or you know Facebook Messenger, things like that. Um, and also really basic, keeping your head and identifying tattoos and identifying birthmarks out of frame. It is a small thing, but it can give you a little bit of reasonable doubt and a little bit of plausible deniability, sort of, if something disastrous were to happen, because ultimately it's about trusting the person you're sending this to and how well can you ever really trust somebody you've only sort of just met in a college setting. You don't know, you know, you could be using the most secure end-to-end encryption, but if somebody else has a cell phone taking a photo of somebody's phone at the same time, you know, you can't ever truly protect protect yourself when you're sexting. You just cannot. So if you're going to engage in that behavior, it's understanding that risk and taking whatever choices you can to kind of lower the risk of catastrophe. Yeah. So you mentioned that you'd been out of college for about 10 years. Am I correct here? Yeah. When I started uh, working on the project. Was there anything that was really surprising to you that had stayed the same when you were discussing um, questions about college hookups and relationships when you were interviewing other college students? Definitely. I think our a lot of young women's perceived lack of rights in their sexual hookups is pretty much the same. I, you know, I was pretty shocked to do an interview with a young woman who was talking about um, having sex with someone for the first time and he slapped her across the face without her consent. And that was pretty shocking to me. Like, admittedly, I've been there, it's happened, you know, and you don't always know what to do in those moments. There's, you know, fight, flight, or freeze, you know, and we often don't talk about the freeze, how we're just so surprised by something, it shuts us down and we don't know what to do. Um, But her response to it was like, well, it didn't really hurt. You know, there wasn't a lot of pressure and, I didn't want to make him feel some type of way about it. You know, I didn't want to make him feel bad about bringing it up and like interrupting things. And like, we eventually got down to like, well, if he did it again, I might've said something. And it's like, wow. And like, she did not like the behavior. It wasn't something that was like, oh, take it or leave it. I'm kind of into this. I don't know. Maybe I won't do it again, but this is fine. Like she did not like the behavior, but she felt that 
the risks of expressing that opinion were higher than, you know, just sitting there and potentially being in a painful, uncomfortable situation. And that, you know, feels really reminiscent of the way the attitudes that I had when I was in college and the way I kind of felt like it was somebody else in the driver's seat and I kind of came second to controlling things. So that didn't shock me at all. I mean, well, I guess I should say um, it didn't shock me that that behavior exists existed in the first place, but I was surprised to find it kind of repeated through several anecdotes with young women today who are, you know, just out of school or still in school. And I think that being able to admit that in some way in life, you personally or have spoken to people or can relate to women who have placated men or relationships that they definitely shouldn't have it takes a lot especially whenever we kind of live in a little bit of an era where it is shameful to admit that you have kind of serviced the patriarchy because we're supposed to be our own but it's (laughs) I, I think that that's why um personally I found the book very compelling because it was very brutally honest (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you're not going to get anywhere without honesty. You know, you're not going to like the first time admitting you have a problem is admitting you have a problem, (laughs) like that old kind of rhetoric, but it is embarrassing sometimes to look back on the way I behaved and the attitudes I held and not to have realized I deserved better. So I think in service of helping other people see that they deserve better and that it's within reach to get that, it was, you know, worth it to sort of dust off some of my more embarrassing experiences to share them in an educational way and also send the message that like, it's okay if you did this. Like, you're not a handmaiden of the patriarchy if you ever felt too scared to say what you wanted. You know, like, that is not your fault and you can only use it as a learning experience to move forward and figure out what you do want and get stronger at working those muscles of asking for it. And this was something I was very interested in because I think that just the nature of what you write about, um, whether it's been in magazines or throughout this entire book, um, it's definitely, I feel like you've made a bit of a career about talking about such an intimate part of the human experience, um, relationships. And I want to know, do you ever feel like your experiences and your memories are just becoming like provocative fodder for your for your work um that kind of is serving your uh career as opposed to maybe your well-being or something yeah no totally it's a great question and it's something so important for you know nonfiction writers and memoirists to grapple with and even you know creative writers and fiction writers who draw from their own experiences as inspiration for fiction um I think you kind of have to have a little bit of brain disease to want to work in this field. You have to be a little bit of a narcissist um, to believe that there's something inherently valuable in your experience that other people should read about it. Um, But I I do, I think it's the best way to universally relate to people is to open up the hood of your own experiences and show the good, bad and the ugly. So while I I definitely don't shy away from that, um, I do have boundaries, you know, being married, having a husband who did not sign up for this line of work, you have rules of what you will and won't talk about, or you might run things by each other. Like, how would you feel if this were to be published? And you can kind of, and whether or not you have a partner, you can ask yourself those questions of like, how am I going to feel in five years if this is in print? 
you know, I, I almost will never write about something that's just happening to me now or just happened to me recently because it, it, it's far too fresh for me to be rational about it, for me to know if I want to share that with people. And B, I don't like have the story yet. Giving yourself the boundary of time can be an excellent way to make sure that you're not exploiting yourself, you know, that you're really taking the time to process something that happened to you and to judge the benefit of whether it's something that readers will, you know, gain something from, or if you're just doing it to, you know, be a bit of an exhibitionist. <laughs> and uh, you have a few kind of like grounding statements within the book, but I am curious if, you know, say some college student reads your book um, and they read the whole thing cover to cover, but they forgot most of it. What is one like guiding principle or one line that you hope just sticks with them after, you know, consuming all of, all of the stories, anecdotes? Yeah. I'd say that it's having an experience with a partner that didn't go the way you wanted never needs to be a source of shame and guilt and stress if you know so long as you were a kind and giving partner and didn't violate somebody else's boundaries if something didn't go well and you're stewing about it and you're worried about it like it's okay it's not your fault there's nothing to feel guilt and shame about and every single opportunity is a chance for you to learn more about what you do want in the future so don't hold on to that stress and pain and guilt because that's not serving you. All you can do is learn from each experience and make the decision that I am worth investing in and I am worth, you know, really putting forth that effort to have the best, healthiest sex I possibly can have. And I really appreciate you mentioning hookups and college relationships on every part of the scale in the sense where some people might not want to explore it as much yeah. as you explored it. Um, so coming in, say, um, you're speaking to, or your book is speaking to someone who's very nervous about college and nervous about hookups. Um, what would you tell them to do if they're feeling a little bit unsure about the whole thing? Totally. Well, not to be a data nerd, but I would look at the statistics that show like there's a ton of people not having sex on campus. Um, you have to, I have to go back to the, to the numbers to know for sure, but I think it's like 25%, maybe more. And that's like one in four people in every group that you're standing in and having a chat you know, you're probably not alone in that. So really reminding yourself, like, I am not the only person who hasn't done this yet, whatever your reasons are, whether you don't want to, and so it hasn't happened yet, or you do want to, and it just hasn't happened yet. You're not alone in that group, which I find to be incredibly comforting, because I think media really does show college as like a giant orgy hookup party, and it's like really not this animal house fantasy that we're all kind of taught. So I think, acknowledging that you have you're in good company and also that sex doesn't fundamentally change who you are it doesn't make you cooler it doesn't make you more worldly and more experienced it just makes you a person who has had more intimate contact with another human's genitals like it doesn't change your personality and it's not going to magically fix your problems or make you more interesting at parties and I think like taking off the veil that there's no special information or special club you get initiated into on the other side of the act can take some of that pressure off and sort of help put you at ease that these interactions are really just for you to feel good. So there's nothing, no point in pursuing an interaction that doesn't make you feel good. And if you're not ready, it's not going to feel good. 
I definitely think that um, <laughs> I I feel like I, I college in general has this air of mystique where you mentioned even at the beginning of your book that you feel like everything's going to be different. You're going to be a new person for no reason. So I think yeah, it is yeah. really great to to hear that. Yeah. And it can be an incredible place of learning and growth and development and meeting new people and trying new skills and giving yourself a bit of a reinvention. But like literally what you do with other people's body parts is not going to be the most important part of that work. You know, it's going to be who you talk to, the classes you take, the clubs you join, you know, the, the skills you practice. That is all going to be much more informative of the person you become than like who you're sleeping with. So read the book of all about sex, but then also go to class and do what you came to school for. Yes, go to class, sit in the front row, raise your hands, ask questions, have your professor know who you are, because that'll be making it really easy to get recommendations later down the line. So it's always good to have your professors know who you are. That's my, my non-sex college tip. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us, Allie. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the thoughtful questions and the great chat. You can find Do As I Say, Not Who I Did at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or as an ebook with a link to purchase in our accompanying review on SMU Daily Campus's website. Thanks for listening to The Fine Print, our relaunch of the Pony Pods Books Reviews podcast. Follow us on Instagram at SMU Daily Campus and on Twitter at The Daily Campus. I've been your host and producer, Simone Melvin. We'll see you soon. <laughs>